Peace to you. Welcome back to The Naked Truth, and thank you for joining me. We're going to pick up where we left off in the New Testament. We've made it Saturday night, so we're in the book of Mark, second book in the New Testament. We're almost through this book. We're up to chapter 15. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. So this is basically the trial of Jesus before the crucifixion. And the religious leaders, are they up to charity? Are they up to making sure the homeless have something to eat? No, they're not interested in any of that at all. They're, they've cooked up some charges to charge Jesus with, and they're going about in the trial to take his life. Verse 2, then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, it is as you say. So now Jesus is being questioned on his trial by Pilate. He's basically the judge. Um, he's the governor of the area at this time. And he's um, he's asked him a plain question. Is he their king? The king of the people, the Jewish people, the nation Jesus was born into. And Jesus it didn't say, yes, I am. He didn't say, oh, no, I'm not. He said, it is as you say. So it's a way of affirming without um, saying yes or no. Just like when Jesus tells us, um, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one in reference to swearing oaths, making promises and so forth. That as Christians, we're not supposed to do that. But instead, you should just say yes or just say no. And if you're not lying, if you're a person true to your word, you don't need to add all those promises and vows to it. Um, but instead, you see how just the opposite is what's embraced by people who are basically Bible thumpers. They say they're Christian, but ignore everything Jesus says. But here's an example of Jesus doing um, affirming. And I only bring that up because if you've ever been called for like jury duty or in court, and you're asked to swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, uh, so help you God. So you can swear to that, yes or no, but if you're a Christian, the thing to do would be to affirm, just like Jesus has done here is just say, it is as you say. So in affirming that, you would just say, uh, yes, you affirm to tell the truth instead of swearing to tell the truth. And it seems slight, but it's, and it is a slight difference, but it's a major difference. It's in one way, it's being faithful to Christianity, literally, and in another way, it's not. So um, just, you know, something I thought I'd point out to you. So Jesus is affirming that, yes, he is the king of the Jewish people. And we're reading on our other daily readings what's happened to the first two kings of the Jewish people. The first one, Saul, sort of seemed to have gone kind of mad with uh, insanity, with dementia at first. And then he took on a murderous streak. And then he eventually tried to commit suicide and, and ended up with an assisted suicide. The first one, that I recall, in the Bible. Um, and that's how his life was taken. The next one, David, the same David and Goliath, David, we're reading about now who starts out as a humble shepherd and quickly the power has gone to his head as he's become king. He's taken on many different wives, which contradicts the whole um, one man, one woman, uh, Bible thumping theory of marriage in modern times in America. It's not biblical. That's not true at all. Yet they convince people that that's what the truth is, um, but it's not biblical. David is an example of it, not the first example of it. And now that he's gotten power, he started taking other people, at least one other person's wife for himself, and has even gone on to commit murder to take the wife fully for himself and impregnate her. 
Um, so just something to keep in mind. That's happening on our other daily readings. Um, but Jesus now is the um, king that um, Jesus is affirming that he is the king of the Jewish people, but not in the sense that we think of a king, queen, president. No, he's the one that's prophesied of is what I believe he's saying. He's affirming he's the one that the old scriptures say would come to bring salvation, not just to the Jewish people, but to the world, whosoever will. Not forcing it on anyone, but making it available to everyone. Verse 3, and the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. So again, the religious leaders are the people who are putting on, who have taken, who charged him um, and taken him to court, basically, and are trying to bring about the death penalty for him. So they're making accusations against him. Verse 4, then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you? So the judge is asking Jesus, why aren't you responding to the accusations, to the charges being brought against you, against him? Verse 5, but Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. So Jesus isn't playing their game, trying to um, go tit for tat with every uh, ridiculous charge they're bringing, they brought against him. Instead, he's just being silent, which if you know anything about court in America, you have the right to remain silent. Um, so he's flexing that right even though it's not something that's um, uh, written out as their law um, at this time in the story. Verse 6, now at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. So one person would traditionally get amnesty um, from the death penalty, would get released from the charges they're facing. Or um, if you consider what presidents do and have done historically, they will um, grant pardons to people, usually before they get out of office, um, so that they don't have to hear anybody's mouth about them pardoning people who are many times obviously guilty, but happen to also be well-connected. And sometimes even family or friends of theirs. We've seen that um, the previous president, he changed whole, um, um, he changed things so that the sentencing laws would change so that his son-in-law's father would be subject to that because if you don't remember his son-in-law his father um was in prison also um but before he left office he changed those laws those rules so that um his son-in-law's father could get released and as far as i know he did get released and i only know about that not because you hear about it on the news uh liberal or conservative but because my own brother also the one who i told you about uh, turned on me he was also affected by that change in the rules, um, and he got out of his life sentence um, on the charges he had been convicted of because the previous president changed those rules. Um, so that's how I happen to know about it. Um, so that's just one example. But another example I believe we'll see very soon is how um, you see how slow the state, New York state in this case, um, is in finding charges, taking up charges, and um, uh, actually taking the previous president to court over the different financial schemes that he's alleged to have committed and crimes he's alleged to have broken. Sometimes seemingly pretty obvious crimes, uh, and yet they're slow in doing it. I think that is so that um, when they do finally do it, um, it'll be just in time for the current president, who's not a Republican, to turn around and pardon him for all of his things and just let it go. 
Could be wrong, but don't be surprised if and when that happens. And I only say that they drag their feet in the case because you see now, just recently, I think just this week, the previous president's corporation company, his name for him was just um, found guilty uh, or at least under suspicion of, I think, no, I think they were found guilty, convicted of um, of um, financial crimes and fraud and such. Don't quote me on the exact crime, but I saw that they were convicted of it, um, but not the person, uh, but instead just the corporation. Another way of allowing him to escape the charges. And I say that because you see um, the same state, New York State, is going after the crypto guy who just uh, they there who's under suspicion for similar financial crimes. But are they letting the, just the corporation get charged like they're doing with the previous president? No, they're charging the corporation and they're charging him, the person who's actually over the corporation. So it lets us know it's a very clear example of how um, the rules aren't for everyone. The rules are for who they want to herd the uh, and lord the rules over. And it looks to me like more white supremacy because the crypto guy doesn't look white. He looks like he might be white, but he also looks like he's probably Jewish. And it's a sad state of affairs, but it's one of the things that America loves to do. It loves to get that wake-up call to the tokens, to people who aren't uh, white, uh, but are passing for white or aligned with white supremacy. They give them a wake-up call every now and then, let them know, no, you're still not one of us and do things like charge them with crimes when they look, overlook it when other people commit similar crimes. Not as kind of a rant, but it's just an example of, since we're reading about pardons and amnesty and so forth, um, that's what the people here um, in Mark are used to, one person getting that same pardon and not facing the death penalty. So they're mentioning all that because it would seem if anybody's due for a pardon, it would be Jesus. They're taking up charges against him, not for killing anyone, not raping anyone, not for stealing from anyone, but for a religious charge against their own religion, charges that they don't even subject themselves to, which Jesus has pointed out before. So um, back to Mark 15, um, verse 7. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They had committed murder in the rebellion. So it's talking about a rebellion. It's talking about other people who are charged along uh, at the same time as Jesus. Jesus is going through his own trial, but other people, Barabbas namely, is also uh, in custody and um, on trial. Not so much on trial, but facing the same punishment at the same time. And it says his fellow rebels. So what they're describing is someone who's part of an insurrection. Other gospels call it as much an insurrection, just like January 6th. And just like January 6th, you see very few of those people have been charged with sedition or treason or uh, or um, inciting the violence of uh, an insurrection or a riot. Very few, even though it was right there on TV for the world to see. And yet you see in Georgia, of all places, just now is charging some people who were peaceful protesters with things like insurrection, rebellion, uh, uh, rioting, and all of that even though it wasn't even nearly on the scale of January 6th. So again, it lets you know how the system is set up to look the other way if you have a certain complexion and uh, throw the book at you if you have another complexion that happens to be darker. Um, but in the case of Barabbas and Jesus, 
they're they're weighing out the two now. At least we're getting set up to the point where we're gonna see how the crowd handles the two. There's Barabbas, who's part of an insurrection, and there's Jesus, who was the peaceful protester against the corruption of a religion. Who do you think the people are going to choose to set free, to give amnesty, to give a pardon to? Verse 8, then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. So now the multitude is putting their two cents in, telling the governor, the judge, who it is they want to be released to get that amnesty, to get that pardon. Verse 9, the Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So the judge, Pilate, is asking them, who do you want me to release to you? The obviously innocent person, Jesus, the king of the Jews, as he's labeling him. Their own king, he's asking them. Verse 10, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. So the narrator here is letting us know that they believe that Pilate is in the know. He knows that what's going on is in a righteous cause. It's not like Jesus shed anyone's blood. He knows that it's out of envy of Jesus's popularity and most likely Jesus's ability to walk the walk, not just talk the talk, to talk about God and actually let the people experience God, something the religious leaders aren't able to do and also it seems not even willing to do even if they could. So even the governor who's not of the same religion as they are is aware that there's uh, they're just cooking up trouble and not sincere in their convictions for trying to take Jesus's life. Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. So the chief priest, once again, up to no good. They aren't at, at looking for truth and justice and the American way like uh, Superman or anything like that. They're not out for righteousness at all. Instead, they're being bloodthirsty and plotting to take an innocent person's life in favor of a person who they know to be guilty, who's uh, uh, at least as guilty as they are of bloodshed from the insurrection that was committed. Real righteous bunch. So verse um, um, verse 12, Pilate answered, answered and said to them again, well, then do you want me to do with him? whom you call the king of the Jews. So Pilate is aware now that they don't want to let, that the person they want to let go is Barabbas, the one who they know has committed a murder in the riot. So he's asking them, well, what do you want me to do with Jesus? Um, he wouldn't really need to ask that if only one person is granted that uh, pardon. Obviously, the thing to do would be to let him go. But it seems he knows that that's not what they want either. Uh, like releasing both of them. Um, so, but he's asking them, sort of giving them a chance to um, say say that they like both of them released, both Jesus and Barabbas. Um, let's see, verse 13. So they cried out again, crucify. So they're, uh, the choice that the people make, the people there at that moment, because uh, remember this is happening sort of early in the morning, the rooster just crowed. It just crowed, uh, meaning the sun had just come up when Peter denied knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, but three different times. And Peter was one of the main disciples along the way, one of the first disciples chosen by Jesus to follow him, um, even told, follow me. Um, so we know this is pretty early in the morning. So the uh, crowd there 
is probably not the entire city and probably not even all of the um, Jewish people, but most likely all of the religious leaders and um, Bible thumpers, so to speak, the people who are most dedicated to the religion, not necessarily righteousness. Um, let's see. Verse, but you see what they want, no matter who they are. They want his blood. They want to kill Jesus. Verse 14, then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out, cried out all the more crucified. So um, Pilate is sort of mystified at what is it they have uh, against Jesus? Why are they so hungry for his blood? Um, they aren't trying to answer that. They're not trying to hear it. They're just continually shouting out that they want him crucified. Verse 15, so Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. So um, the loudest voice prevails. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. The people who are there, whether they're the um, majority of the people or not, they're the ones that are there, and they're the most vocal, just as in the same way in the system of voting. Um, it may not be everyone's will. We've seen again and again, after subject after subject, the thing that the politicians push for are not necessarily the things that are most popular among the people. The things that the people support, uh, both sides support, sometimes in the number of 80%, Republican or Democrat, yet those aren't the subjects, the topics, the causes that the people elected the power push for at all. Um, they choose other things, culture war things, to keep people wrangled on their side as far as Republicans go, and the Democrats don't seem to push for anything. They just sort of sit back and let the Republicans run rush, roughshod over them and offer a little bit of opposition to them when they get enough pressure to. Um, that's not a winning strategy, but I think that's what they're intentionally paid to do is to lose. It's sad. It's kind of pathetic, but it seems that's what's up with the American system of politics. Um, both are aligned with the same um, corporate interests and the same people who pay them to um, fetch their water, basically, and do what it is they're told. One, more openly against you, the Republicans, and the other, sort of just tacitly go along with agreeing to it. And obviously not all, because all is an absolute. Most absolutes aren't true or accurate, but surely the great, great majority of both just seem to go along with whatever it is they're paid to go along with not righteousness, not justice, not Christianity, though they try to label it that, none of that is Christianity. It's actually the opposite of what Jesus tells us to do, loving your neighbor as yourself, doing unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Uh, none of that is the ideal of either side, it seems. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 15, so Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd, release Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after his version to be crucified. Did we read that already? Pilate is giving in to what it is the crowd wants. And he's beaten Jesus. That's what scourging is. Beat him with a whip. And then he's turned him over to go ahead and face the death penalty, the crucifixion. Verse 16. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium. And they called together the whole garrison. So now the soldiers have taken Jesus from the public display where he was on trial to um, private quarters where um, we're going to read about what they're going to call mocking him. 
and we've gone over before what that is, but let's just read it and see. So the soldiers have taken Jesus back, the whole garrison of them, so a group of soldiers. Verse 17, and they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. So notice, like I said, we they're doing what we call mocking him. And um, that mocking entails a whole lot more than just schoolyard teasing like children would do, I believe. It reads something more like how we read in the Old Testament when um, someone is accused of mocking someone. It's akin to sexual assault. And it sounds a lot like if you've ever seen the movie or the documentary or know of the instance of the, um, oh, what's it called? The Stanford Prison Experiment. I'll try to remember the link in it in the um, description of this um, of this um, episode and just in case you um, forget or, you know, so that you can see it for yourself. It's out there and available for free. And it shows you what happens when people are given a little authority. Soldiers are not. They're given the authority of soldiers and then the other people are given the position of, um, of um, subjects to that authority. And you see how very quickly what happens, it quickly turns into a destructive, abusive um, um, situation where the, the, the energy between the two quickly becomes abusive and very quickly turn, takes a sexual turn. Even though they're all men, it takes a sexual and all presumably straight men. As soon as you give one man power over another one, it doesn't seem to take long. I think it was like three days in the experiment when it suddenly took that sort of ugly, abusive turn and sexual um, aggression started to be the tool used by those in power against those who were subject to them. Um, but let's keep reading. The soldiers have now taken Jesus's clothes because that's what it's saying. It, they clothed him with purple. So presumably that included stripping his own clothes off and which the other gospels are more explicit about saying. So that shows you right there. For some reason, the first thing they do is start to take his clothes off. And like I said before, with the Stanford ex prison experiment, you get a better, a, a more visual idea in modern times how that would have happened or what that would be like. If you want a more, um, that's more modern, even though that was what, 40 years ago or something like that. Another movie that sort of um, depicts that same sort of um, dynamic between the power, powerful and the powerless, um, and especially um, applicable to this would be in Roman times, would be the movie Caligula. And I have to warn you, if you watch that, it's explicit. Um, sexually and otherwise explicit. So uh, if you watch that, brace yourself and um, and um, it'll give you an idea of what society like then uh, was most likely like back then compared to how it is now. And you'll get also an idea, since that's closer to the time of Jesus, what sort of um, things the um, governmental officers would have been up to when they mocked someone uh, more than just slaps and tickles and teases. Uh, lot worse than that. But what we're at now, as it's written, they've taken Jesus' clothes and put other clothes on him and even twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. So most likely he's also bleeding from his head now from the thorns um, breaking his skin in his head. Verse 18, and began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. So now that's more of the mocking. They are recognizing he's the king of the people who put him on trial and um, 
and are seeking his life. And so they're saying hail, just like they would say hail Caesar, they're saying hail king of the Jews, uh, but not out of reverence. Verse 19, then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowing the knee, they worshiped him. So um, nothing but um, disrespect is what they're showing to the savior, who again, hasn't done anything wrong hasn't taken anyone's life, hasn't taken anyone's money, hasn't uh, done anything like that. He's only spoken out against the corrupt religious system that works along with the corrupt governmental system to keep the people herded in under their thumb. Uh, verse 20, and when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. So there you have it. At some point, they took his clothes off of him. You usually only do that. Um, well, oh, just like I said before, you could see with that whole Stanford prison experiment how that sort of thing develops quickly. And you could imagine in even less civilized times like the Roman period of reign over entire territories, um, nations of, of um, or I think even continents of people, how um, that probably went when it came to ripping a, a, so a, a prisoner's clothes off and putting some other clothes on them. <clears throat> Excuse me. But now they've put Jesus' clothes back on him, his own clothes back on him. And now um, to continue the insults, they've led him out to crucify him, to carry out the death penalty. Verse 21. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. So now they've dragged someone else into the picture, someone else um, to um, carry Jesus' cross um, to where he's going to be crucified. So presumably they've beaten Jesus pretty bad that he can't carry his own cross at this point um, and abused him pretty badly that he's not able to carry his own cross. Um, but they found someone to help, verse 22, and they compelled him. So it's not like they were asking for volunteers. Almost certainly they just grabbed him and made him help. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. So now they've reached the place where they intend to crucify Jesus, Golgotha. Verse 23, then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. So, um, they're offering Jesus that uh, mixture. Um, some people believe it would be to um, help ease the pains. Um, I don't know why they would have compassion on his pain and suffering, his or any of the other prisoners' pain or suffering at that point. Uh, but whatever the reason, Jesus didn't accept it. Verse 24, and when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. So now they've um, put him to death. Well, they commit. They pulled the plug, uh, flipped the switch, like if you were in the in the electric chair, or um, dropped the bottom out of you if you were being hanged. They crucified him. They put him up on the cross. And now they're even gambling for his clothes. That's what casting lots is. It'd be just like if you flip the coin or drew straws. Is to see who wins. Um, whatever it is, it's to take, to, it's a game of chance. That's what casting lots is. It'd be like a lottery. Um, and it's presumably to eliminate the um, 
corruption, people can add to it and leave it all to chance to see who should get what. Verse 25, now it was the third hour and they crucified him. So now it's about nine o'clock in the morning. That's what the third hour is. Since the first hour would be basically from six to seven, um, you know, when the sun comes up. So now this is nine o'clock in the morning, basically. So I let you know, a whole lot of the area, the city, just like in modern times, is still asleep um, or either just waking up. So they didn't take part in the trial um, because it took time to put him on trial. It took time to take him back there and abuse him take his clothes off of him, abuse him, mock him, and mistreat him, spit on him, and so forth, whip him and beat him. And now, um, after all that time has passed, now he's um, being crucified. Uh, verse 26, and the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. So just like uh, you would get charging documents when you're if you're arrested in modern times, the thing they're charging Jesus with for the death penalty is being the king of the Jews. So um, that would be basically like treason or sedition. If someone rose up and said, no, they're actually the president. Um, now you see people have been saying again and again that the election was stolen and that the previous president is still the president and nothing happens to them. I believe that's more white supremacy because if the same thing had happened, uh, say to Obama, um, you think they just let them do that? I don't think so. That would not happen. They charged them with everything they could um, for disrespecting the office, and they make an example. That's what they love to do when the uh, when the um, suspect is black. They love to make an example out of them um, so that other people will see it in fear. Um, but if they're not black, well, they find all kinds of reasons and excuses for leniency and to not throw the book at them. Even when their people paid to enforce the law and caught breaking the law, they hardly ever get the same intense, intense scrutiny and harshest charges possible as they do when you're a civilian breaking those same laws. Civilians who pay to have those laws enforced, by the way, through the taxes and so forth. So anyway, Jesus' accusation is that he's the king of the Jews and that that's why he's been crucified. Verse 27, with him they also crucified two others, two robbers, excuse me, one on his right and the other on his left. So Jesus isn't the only one hanging on the cross. Two other people are being executed at the same time also, one on either side of Jesus. Verse 28, so the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So now the narrator here, presumably Mark, but not necessarily, could just be the one who's passed on the uh, gospel, the message of Mark to us, uh, scribed it, written it down for us, um, saying that they believe that um, what's happening now is the fulfillment of um, Old Testament scriptures. And they're saying they believe Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 12, is what's being fulfilled in what they're doing to Jesus. Um, that um, the Savior would be crucified um, and numbered with criminals, basically, and be um, considered a criminal. Um, let's see, verse 29. And, sorry, my page has frozen here. Okay, verse 29. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroyed a temple and build it in three days. 
So now um, it's not enough that they've crucified him, an innocent person, put him on, uh, uh, given him the death penalty. Now they're even walking by and making fun of him and um, accusing him of things and making quotes of things he didn't actually say. They're saying that they're saying aha and saying it is saying it as if he said it that he would destroy the temple and build it in three days. That's not what he said at all. What he told the religious leaders uh, before was that if they destroy, um, he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was referring to this whole incident of them um, taking his life his um, uh, with the crucifixion and that even though they do that, destroying his the temple of his body, in other words, he would be resurrected in three days. So even though, even what they're accusing him of isn't actually accurate, what they're saying is, um, and some of them know it, the chief priests know it, and we'll know that by how they, um, what they do after he's died on the cross. They know that he didn't say anything about destroying their physical temple, but that's part of what they're accusing him of when they've um, taken him to trial. Um, so now they're walking by saying, thinking they're mocking him, making fun of him, um, thinking or saying that he will destroy the temple and uh, build it in three days. Verse 30, save yourself and come down from the cross. So they're, um, again, they're just making fun of Jesus in this instance, saying, well, um, if you're so powerful, then why don't you save yourself? You uh, claim you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Why don't you come down from the cross? Uh, again, that's not even what he said, but that's what they're saying Um calling themselves ridiculing him. Verse 31, likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, he saved others himself he cannot save. So there is part of the confession there. They realized it all along that the things Jesus did, he actually did. It's not like he was going around lying or that the report of him being a miracle worker, a healer, a teacher, are false. Those aren't false accusations. They know that he truly was doing those things. Um, so that's not even disputed. They're some of the ones who've even testified of the fact that he was able to perform some of those miracles. It would take them off that he was able to perform some of those miracles, sometimes for ridiculous reasons, like what day of the week that he performed them on. If it's on their Sabbath, they'd find fault with it. If it was for different reasons, they'd, pick, they'd place blame on him for doing the things he did, but they never denied that he was actually doing it. It's not like they he was a fake. So even here, they're confessing that he did save others. Um, so even that is it's it's not a lie. They know he was able to do the different things that he has the reputation of doing. Verse 32, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe even those who were crucified with him reviled him. So now they're back to um, saying, well, if he is the Christ, if he is the anointed one, if he is the king that old, that the scriptures told them to anticipate and the different signs of, the, of his coming, if he is that one, then let him go ahead and prove it to us now by coming down from the cross, if he's really that one. Uh, and, then, and they're saying, and then we'll believe him. So all his other actions... All the things they've witnessed him doing, the words they've heard him say, and all the different miracles weren't enough to convince them. But now they're saying, but if you go ahead and come down from the cross, 
show us one more thing, one more uh, trick, then we'll go ahead and believe it. Um, nonsense. And even the people who were crucified with him reviled him, so many and the other two uh, who were also being crucified um, treated Jesus the same way. Now that sort of, that may be the case at the point where whoever it is, Mark presumably, or whoever it is that's passed on a message to Mark, uh, heard or saw at that point. But we know that at least in the Gospel of Luke, that at least one of the other people who were crucified with Jesus had a change of heart and actually believed that Jesus was the Savior and even uh, found salvation in that, in that moment. He didn't get down from the cross and get baptized. He didn't go before a church council and confess. None of that. He just told the Savior, Jesus himself, um, that he believed he was the Savior. And Jesus told him, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Um, and just like that, that's how we know that person who was also convicted and under the death penalty um, found salvation in that moment. And did it without, again, without any baptism, without any formal church attendance, without any priest or preacher saying a prayer over him. In just that moment, he was able to find that salvation, even though that's different than what we're reading here now. Um, at this point, anyway, uh, in the book of Mark, that's in the book of Luke. Um, but that's a whole nother conversation about death, dying, and what happens after this. Because some people... Some religions would have you believe another religion in the Bible that arises after this, the um, religion of Catholicism that says to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord, meaning when you die, you meet your maker. That's not what Jesus says happens. We as Christians have to realize that difference because Jesus gives us the example in the Gospel of Luke of what happens when what happened when two people died. One person went one place upstairs basically the other person went some other place downstairs basically one person to the flames downstairs one person to this paradise upstairs neither person encountered god neither person encountered the devil neither person according to what we read in luke goes to heaven and neither person went to hell and yet both people lived after they died so but again that's a whole other reading if you've read along with me you already know what I'm referring to. If you're interested in reading it yourself, then you can look back at the Naked Truth Archives. It's Luke chapter 16, where Jesus goes into Lazarus and rich man and what happens to both of them when they died. Or if you want to look at the crucifixion in Luke, uh, it's Luke chapter 23. If you want to read over uh, what happens to the person who is crucified, crucified alongside Jesus, who has that change of heart and finds salvation in that last moment. Um, verse 33. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So now it's basically noon and um, it's either an eclipse or something supernatural happening. Whatever the case may be, it's dark at noon, which is not normal. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama, which is translated, my God, my God, why? So if you're reading along with me, or even if you know this verse, you um, know that I read it as it's written, just didn't read everything that's written. And if you've read along with me before, you know why. Um, if, you, if this is your first time reading with me, I'll just say very quickly as I can. 
I'm referring to Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. Again, where Jesus tells us Christians to avoid promises, to avoid vows, to be careful of the things we say. I'm paraphrasing all of that um, because there's energy, there's power to the spoken word, the thing you actually say. Jesus tells us, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Um, so again, the word, there's energy, there's power in your words. So if you say something, even inadvertently, even and maybe even especially if it's in the Bible, something like, why has God forsaken you? Then don't be surprised if a time comes where you feel or maybe even realize God has forsaken you. Um, so be careful in reading that, I'd say. Um, and that's why I read it as it's written, just didn't read it all out loud. Um, but again, believe what you want, say what you want. Jesus is um, said what he said, and what he's saying is actually a quote from the book, Old Testament book of Psalms, chapter 22. And I think what Jesus is doing by quoting that is letting us know, giving us one more lesson, a teaching tool to let us all look back on the book of Psalms, chapter 22, to realize that what's happening to him, what he's experiencing in that moment is a fulfillment of those events of chapter 22 of Psalms, that those were the events that would happen to, it's a prophecy in chapter in Psalm, in the book of Psalms, chapter 22, and other chapters, other um, scripture in the Old Testament that point to Jesus's ministry, his mission, and even his suffering and crucifixion. And I believe that's what Jesus is doing, letting us know that what's happening right there is a fulfillment of chapter 22 in the book of Psalms. And also, I think on another level, what Jesus may be doing and showing us there is in that moment, that's when the spirit of Jesus parted from the flesh of Jesus. That's when the suffering was done, the mission was accomplished, and the spiritual side of Jesus departed from the physical side of Jesus, um, and then his flesh died. Just my own belief, at least my speculation. Um, as always, believe what you want. But that's what Jesus has said in verse 34. So verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. So once again, they're misunderstanding what Jesus said and what he meant. They think he's calling for the old, some people are saying they believe he's calling for the Old Testament, as we call it, prophet Elijah. That's the same prophet who um, previously appeared to Jesus in what we uh, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. When Jesus was, when some of the disciples spotted Jesus, saw Jesus in a so-called transfigured body, a glorious body full of light, so to speak like you would light up a lantern or a jack-o'-lantern um, if you put a light inside of um, a, 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 a pumpkin, how it looks like there's light emanating from it. Um, when Jesus appeared to them in that way, um, two other people also appeared to them, and one was Elijah, the other was Moses, two Old Testament figures. Moses was the one who presented the people with the as we call them, Ten Commandments, um, which Jesus affirmed, not along with all those other ordinances and statutes that religion later cooked up to go along with the Ten Commandments, um, but just those Ten Commandments, that's who Moses was. 
And Elijah was another prophet who showed up in the Old Testament, one of the only people in the entire Bible, according to the narrative, who didn't die. He uh, lived and instead was carried away in what we call a UFO. He was carried away in a fiery chariot um, and taken away. And then only according to the Bible, according to Jesus, reappeared in the New Testament, reincarnated in plain English, as we say it in modern times, as John the Baptist, and then faced death, faced the death penalty, was killed, and his life taken then. Uh, so that's who Elijah was. And they believe, uh, they're saying they believe that that's who Jesus was calling for when he said what he said about Eloi, Eloi. Of course, that's not what he said. Um, but that's what they're saying. Verse 36, then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. So once again, they're offering Jesus wine to drink, presumably to quench his thirst or ease his suffering. Um, and he didn't take it the first time when the soldiers offered it to him. They're offering it to him now. Um, again, and they're saying, let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. So they know the whole narrative of Elijah being carried away in what we call a UFO. Um, so they're wondering, well, maybe Elijah's going to make some grand appearance now and deliver Jesus from the cross. Verse 37, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. So it's three o'clock. I meant to mention that when it said uh, the ninth hour. <clears throat> Excuse me. And now Jesus has officially died. He's passed away. His flesh has expired. Verse 38, then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So the veil is a curtain of the temple. That's the place that they go to worship was torn in two from top to bottom. So meaning some most likely, at least it's the way it reads, a supernatural force, presumably God or powers on high is who tore the curtain. Because for a person to have torn it, it would have been torn from the bottom to the top. Someone at the bottom of the curtain ripped it till they tore all the way to the top of the curtain. But instead, the veil was torn from the top to the bottom. And I think what's what this means uh, symbolically is that the religion that was supposed to be looking out for the coming of the Christ, looking out for the anointed one to show up, looking out for the Messiah to perform these different um points in his ministry and his mission before facing the death penalty, the crucifixion, the rejection, all of that, that whole religion that was um, entrusted to teach the people, to let the people know that these are the signs to look for and he's the one to look for, he's the one to turn to when the Christ comes, that whole religion, that whole system, I think that's was being destroyed. It's being the curtains being pulled back from it, it's being torn, it's being revealed. I think that's the point of it. And obviously not the entire religion, but specifically the um, sect of the religion alive at the time of Jesus, the Pharisees and Sadducees in, in other words. And we know from history, they were destroyed um, around 70 AD when the city of Jerusalem was conquered and um, besieged and the people in it including the Pharisees, uh, were destroyed. Um, that sect of the religion responsible for, at least at this time, the crucifixion of Jesus was then destroyed, and that sect of the religion exists no more at that moment. 
something Jesus also prophesied to them would happen. Um, so I think that was the significance of the veil being torn in two, letting us know that whole religious system is done. It's over that making animal sacrifices to a corrupt religious system of priests that ignore the laws that they inflict on you is done. I think that was the significance of the veil of the temple being torn in two because the veil served as a separation of point of um, divide of how far humans could go, people could go, even the priests could go in approaching God, in approaching um, uh, the Holy of Holies as it's called. That veil was the dividing line that people couldn't pass beyond that without offending. And in some case, paying, pay cases as we've read in, the old, in uh, other daily readings about the Old Testament, when they offend in doing that, they face instant karma, so to speak. They instantly were killed um, by uh, supernatural powers for offending and getting too close to those powers. Um, so I think that that's, what's, that's the significance of the veil being torn, letting us know that whole system is done with, it's over with, it's goose is cooked. Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. So the centurion is a Roman soldier who's um, standing by and seeing what's happening. He's standing opposite Jesus, who's been crucified, and he sees what's happened. And he's even he, who's not even a part of their religion, because remember, uh, in the Roman society, they have a pantheon of gods and goddesses that they worship in the, as their religion. And actually, so do the um, people in the Bible. In our other daily readings, we've seen that in the Old Testament. They have the Asherahs, and, the, and um, that's a pantheon of goddesses and so forth that they worship there, and the Molechs, and the, all sorts of other deities, entities that they worship and call their Lord and call their God and worship as God. Um, but in English, they get translated to the word Lord, um, just as an example. So, but even in this example, the centurion, who's not a part of their religion, is recognizing Jesus's divinity in that moment of what's happening to him um, uh, with the cross and everything. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome. So Mary Magdalene is one of the female followers of Jesus. Mary, the mother of James, the lesson of Joseph, is, I believe, Jesus's mother, because um, even though religion will say that Mary, his mother, was a perpetual virgin after she had Jesus, the Gospels tell us that's simply not true. That's just more religion telling you a lie, which is very popular, but the truth, for whatever reason, is much less popular. We read previously Jesus had uh, several brothers and sisters, even some of them by name. James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon were the names given to Jesus's other brothers, and the sisters didn't even get a name in the Gospels. Um, so I believe that's who the other Mary mentioned there is. And Salome is uh, another one. So whether she's the same Salome who danced for Herod, I think it was Herod, who danced for the king um, by command of her mother, um, to end up um, costing John the Baptist his head, whether that's the same Salome or not, it's unclear. But um, of the three women, those are uh, of the women who follow Jesus, those are three by name who are standing nearby 
to see the events of his crucifixion. Verse 41, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So notice how the narrator here is letting us know the most faithful followers of Jesus, even to the point of his death on the cross, were the women, not the 12 male disciples, but instead the females, the women. I won't say females, the women, because we don't know what's under their skirts, whether they were biological females or not, but they are identified as women. And like I said before, even though Bible thumpers and the religious right in America like to pretend it's all the same thing, sex and gender are not the same thing. All women are all females are not women. All women are not females. As an example, some females are women. Some females are ladies. Some females are girls. They're not all the same thing. They're three different things that are all um, considered women, all considered girls, all considered, not even all considered girls, all considered the same gender, but not all the same sex. And in some cases, all the same sex, but not all the same gender. It's two different things where the people want to be enlightened enough to know that or not. Um, so I won't presume that they're all females, but they are all identified as women. And I say that because one of the women um, says that she's a sinful woman. It doesn't say what her sin was, but only that she was a sinful woman uh, when we read about her. Um, so God only knows what the religion or society called sinful at that time to label her that way. Anyway, so it's letting us know some of the most faithful were the women, not the men. Verse 42, now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So if you're someone who's trying to count the days to see if Jesus was dead three days and three nights, like it, like some of the Gospels say, um, we know now Jesus has been dead now for at least one day because he died during the daytime um, before the evening came. So that's one day already. Now the evening has come. It's saying that it was the preparation day. So the evening actually marks the next day, um, according to the culture. It, when the sun set, that's when the new day began, rather than when the sun rises. So now that the sun has set, it's now the preparation day. It's now another day, and first is the night. So now that's the first night of those three days, if you're trying to count them. So now we've already got one day and one night that Jesus has been deceased. Um and it's the preparation day, meaning the day that people can prepare all the things they'll need to have done so that they can't do, so they aren't obligated, so that they can abide by the rule of not doing any work on the Sabbath. Because according to the religion, that's forbidden. You aren't allowed to do anything, physical labor on the Sabbath. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So now we have a very clear description of who Joseph is. He's from Arimathea, an, as far as I know, unknown area of the region. But also, um, it's identifying him as a council member and, um, uh, and um, someone who was anticipating the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom. Some modern churches, religions, will also try to say he's Jesus' uncle. That's not written anywhere in the Bible. He's not even identified here as um, Jesus' uncle. And some religions will try to say that's how come he's able to get the body of Jesus because he's 
Jesus's nearest of kin, so to speak. He's the kinsman redeemer, as they like to say, as we've read about in the Old Testament. But we know that's just not true. We just read that his own mother is nearby. That's nearer of kin than an uncle. And his brothers, the uh, Josephs, Judas, Simon, those are also his brothers. So they're nearer to kin than an uncle would be. So we just know that's religion again, preaching a lie and making it popular, but it's still untrue. You can still believe it if you want to, but it's simply not true. Um, but Joseph is the one uh, who's asking for the body of Jesus. Verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion, centurion, he asked if he had been dead for some time. So the judge, Pilate, is wondering, has Jesus been dead for a while or not? So he's asking them, the Roman soldiers. Verse 45. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. So not a kinsman redeemer, but just a faithful follower, Joseph, that is. And unfortunately, a closet follower because he's afraid of the religious authorities. Presumably because he's probably friends with a lot of them. But he's gone secretly and asked for the body of Jesus. And now he's been granted the body of Jesus. Again, not as a kinsman redeemer, but just as a, a follower. Verse 46, then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. So the, the description sounds a lot like the way ancient Egypt would bury people. Um, with as a mummy, basically mummifying them in strips of linen with spices to help ward off the scents, the smell of rotting flesh, basically. Um, and remember, even though churches and modern religion, Bible thumpers like to do, pretend and whitewash everything and make you believe everyone in the, every narrative in the Bible is snowy white, we know that's not the case because the events of the Old Testament of the origin of the um, the, the, the uh, religion of the Jewish people was in Africa. And uh, we know what people in Africa look like. They're dark-skinned. And uh, you almost have to be a certain complexion to even endure the sun in that region. So not that it matters to me, but just so you understand how whitewashing works and how a lie can be so much more popular than the truth. Because you see here, he's even being buried. He's even taking care to bury Jesus the same way ancient Egyptians buried people with the strips of linen, with the spices to ward off the smell. Um, not so much the same way as um, uh, people of the same religion may bury people now. Verse 47, and Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. So Mary Magdalene, still faithful to Jesus, Mary, his mother, still faithful to Jesus, are there and observing where Jesus' body was laid and buried. That's the last verse of this chapter. So that's where we'll end this reading. As always, thank you for joining me. And I hope you'll join me again. I hope the naked truth is a blessing for you. And I hope to see you next time. Love you. Merry Christmas to you. It's almost here. God bless you. Thanks again and peace be with you.